You're listening to the Racer to Racer podcast presented by Race 92. Race 92 is a vintage-inspired racing apparel brand specializing in celebrating vintage race culture and adapting to motorsports today. Check out Race92.com for all your racing merchandise needs. I'm your co-host, Aaron McTier, other co-host you may have seen walking out of Barber Lounge 459 with a big old smile on his face. He is Scott Bowie. Hey, what's going on, Aaron? Not much. It, um, good weekend. Um, lots of good racing on, and um, we will get into that. But before we do, I um, want to thank everyone for listen- listening and watching. Um, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, and also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere else our podcast can be found. Um, some shout outs to some of our sponsors, Racer Collect. Um, go to racercollect.com for all your racing mem- memorabilia needs. Um, Patrick's actually got a um like a fantasy IndyCar league going on on his like oh, form cool. page and racer collect. And I was leading before this week. I should still <laughs> be pretty close to the top based on my picks, but yeah, it's cool. I think he's given out like to the winner like a hundred bucks on his website at the end of the end of the end of the season or something. So it's cool. Um also thanks to Fast Times into recording. Um one of our great partners that allow us to do the Pro vs. Joe's video series. I just released um, Sebastian Severde last week. Um, that was a really good one. Um, the next one, probably be in a couple weeks, um, it is a current IndyCar driver. Was super stoked about it. Um, there, we had we had some issues and he had to come back a second time. But he, he was a great sport about it. Great guy. Um, and as you would say, I would run through a brick wall for that dude. So... He's a good dude. Yeah. I really like that guy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the one thing I like about Patrick Patton's deal is that uh, there's a lot of scumbags that deal in merch, you know, like that type of stuff, mm-hmm. signed autograph stuff or helmets and the helmets are fake and the pictures are fake and sure. everything's fake. And with Patrick's stuff, it's not fake. Um, so, I mean, that's, I don't know, man. Like, I just think that, the way he does it's so much better than how other people do it. So, I mean, I do agree. Big shout out to him because there are some real scumbags in that end of the industry and sad. They take advantage of people and it's just too bad. Absolutely. Definitely hear a lot of stories and, um, you know, Patrick's a really good dude. So be sure to support him if you can. And then, um, Man, so there, there's one sponsor that uh, we're going there. You know, Scott always brings up that I'm just like, yeah, they're they're great people, but you know, as as we know, it's it's been pretty cool. Um, but last week we had our first. Well, I would say our first, but last week it was one of our first warmer weeks, and something said, "Hey, Aaron, you probably should turn on your heat, or I'm sorry, your air conditioning. <laughs> turn on the heat. Turn on the air conditioning, and make sure your air conditioner works. If you remember." Probably no one does, but I had an air conditioning issue last year, um, and I had to use my home warranty company because they paid for it, and they replaced my air conditioner. Um, after I had it replaced, um, about a month later, I started having some issues, and then um, they came out. They just recharged the air conditioner, which I found later on they shouldn't have had to do, and then about another month later, it started freezing up again, and then it was okay, and then it got cold. So then I had to turn on the yep. heat. So this was the first time I had to turn on my air conditioner and it wasn't getting cold. And <laughs> I called first, I called the home warranty people. And then I thought about this. And I was like, nope, you know what? I need to call on the professionals. I need to call on the real people. So I called in 
Good folks are good guys. I sure did. And I will say I texted Ryan from Good Guys. Um, I think it was what day? It was like Wednesday night at like something like that, yeah. Seven o'clock. I did not expect this guy to respond. It was like six o'clock. I'm sorry. I, I did not expect him to respond, but he responded within five minutes and he said, um, we can get someone out there tonight. <clears throat> and I yep. was like, uh, and I was just absolutely surprised. Um, and then five minutes later, one of his guys texts me, says I could be there in 30 minutes. And they took care of me. They got, <laughs> they, they, they figured out the issue and I'm up and running. Um, came, they came out the next day and it was about a two to three hour process. Um, when the original installers put something in, there was, there was a bat leak. They didn't, um, braid it together correctly and, um, they fixed it. They vacuumed the line out. They, they, I, I don't know all the terms, but they made sure that there was no more leaks. Um, and I'm up and running and I am very confident that if I do have any other problems, I can just give them a text or a call and I know they will be out, um, as soon as they can and take care of the problem. It's definitely yeah. a lot. It it's, it it gives you a nice reassurance because the the people I had to deal with before it take it took them three hours just to answer the phone. So right, well they've definitely saved my ass several times over the years. Yeah, uh, Ryan worked for a different company before that, um, but such a good dude. They are, you know, when it says good guys, and it, I mean it's a you know, in this case they really mean it and. Uh, they do excellent work. And they showed you exactly what the problems were. Yeah, and that, they that's showed what you I exactly like. how how the other place just did it as quick and dirty as they possibly could mm-hmm. um, to get done with you, so they could get on to the next person and screw that job up. And it's too bad. It makes me, you know, it really does make me sad to hear these stories because people work so hard for their money. Yeah, and, and nobody takes any. You know, I I say nobody, but we're talking about people who do, but. You know, so few people take pride in their work because the, the dollar is the bottom line. And um, I'm just glad that they were able to get you up and going. Um, you know, just air conditioning. It may not have been something we had uh, years and years and years ago, but it's now something people can hardly live without. So, Absolutely. And, and, and you, you just mentioned something that was, was huge. So Brandon from Good Guys is a guy that came out, great guy. And the thing that, that I really liked was he was just so hands-on and he was just like, this is what they did. And he showed me exactly where the leak was. He had his little machine and I don't know what it's called, but it just starts clicking. And as soon as it hits a leak, it just goes nuts. And he's like, there's a leak right here. I mean, he looked at it for five seconds and he was like, there's a leak somewhere along here. And he took his little machine and sure enough, it was just going right. nuts. Um and the other guys came down there and they were looking at all this stuff. And they said that, you know, the AC unit was installed on July. And um, in August, I started having the problem. And they said, well, we just need to top off the refrigerant. Um, but I was talking to Brandon and he was like, that's definitely not the case. When the temperature is the same like that, you absolutely do not have to do that. But if so, if you get an AC installed like in April, like I did or not installed, but at least filled with refrigerant. Um, I may have to have it topped off in the summer because of the di- difference in temperatures. Right. That's only changed, but July to August, you shouldn't need it topped off. But I, I probably rambled on a little too long here. But um, like I said, good guys, we're not getting paid to say this. <laughs> I really do mean it. 
if, if you have any AC issues at all, need a tune up, um, definitely check out good guys. Absolutely. Yeah, and absolutely. I had another theory that I actually talked to my dad about. And I, and he, he, he think we think that may have something to do with if, if you tell, if you tell anyone, you know, Scott Bowie, it seems like people kind of throw themselves at you. So that may have something to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Scott well, Bowie. I will tell you this. I, I really have. And I mean this, I've really spent a large portion of my life trying to surround myself with people who and businesses who, who, who do <laughs> care. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not always successful. Um, and, you know, it's not always, doesn't always last, but I really do. And, and, um, I, so I, you know, it's just an old term. I love to gamble amongst my own crew. So I try to find people that are worth gambling with, and I have no problem giving them money. I, what I have a problem is, is what you dealt with. Yeah. And, you know, having to give people money who don't care. Um, So I I would not say that they jump. I would say that they would do it for anybody. And, but that's because I have really sought out these relationships and I've worked on these relationships for a lot of years. Yep. And um, that one of the best quotes I think I ever heard was um, number one rule to success, surround yourself with good people. That's right. So keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, so enough rambling about AC, <laughs> but I, I am nice and in, in a climate can nice climate control environment tonight because of the good folks are good guys. Right. Yeah. Me too. I'm the exact same way. And you should be too out there. So just remember there are good people who will take care of you. Absolutely. Well, um, you know, it, I didn't get to watch a lot of racing today because I went mountain biking, but I did watch into the IndyCar race. Um, you know, Kyle Kirkwood, you know, great to see him get his first one. And yes. I know a lot of people, I talked to a couple of people last year. I don't know how these this conversation got brought up, but there was a conversation like, who's the worst IndyCar driver? And I heard a couple of people say Kyle Kirkwood. And I was just <laughs> like, whoa. Um, first off, you have to look at the team he's on. Um, right. I saw I saw a quote. Um I saw a quote that uh, from, I think it was from him saying that, you know, last year he was really like overdriving the car um, to try to overcompensate for the performance of it. So, I mean, that makes sense because people are like, well, why, you know, I mean, he's crashing a lot though. Like that's well, because he's overdriving the car. That's right. That's right. And that's what happens to a lot of drivers who, who uh, they may be great drivers and they just in, Bad situations. Well, I mean, whether, you know, I mean, the team may have been one thing when they signed with them and personnel changes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And these drivers are just trying to make careers and hang into the sport and show everybody they're worth the money that costs to run them. And you get to drive in too hard and you get yourself in positions and plus you're qualifying bad. So, you know, mm-hmm. you get yourself in positions that aren't great. And, you know, obviously we're talking about Foyt racing uh, from last year. I, I hate to say these things because I have so much respect for AJ and that. And the funny part is, is they've got really, they have a really good long beach package. So like Kyle's best finish last year, I believe or one of his best finishes was that long beach last year when he ran 11th or 10th or whatever it was. Yeah. And Ferrucci ran like 10th or 11th today. Um, so for whatever reason, I mean, that, that just shows you, I mean, Drivers can only 
do so much in these deals. And, and the teams, I mean, engineering and everything, the, the grid is so close that the engineering has to be spot on and the strategy has to be spot on. Uh, we've talked about it before, and actually today they didn't have a horrible day, but you look at a team like um, Ray Hall, Letterman, uh, Lanigan, or however you want to put it, you know, they were running, and they may have finished, uh, in, you know, like 12th, 13th, or 14th, or whatever the finish was. Um, and that was as good as those cars were going to run. And the same thing with yeah. uh, what's going on in Carpenter. I mean, they just, they're missing it. And, and you know, it's, it, it may not be by a lot, but mm-hmm. for whatever reason, these teams are just off. And... Uh, I hope to see them turn it around. I like to see all these teams succeed. They spend so much time and money and effort, and you know, and there's you got real people working on these teams who are giving everything they got, and um, you hate to see it. But these teams are often missing just something small, but it's a big, it's big in the big picture. Right, and I mean, you know, Connor Daly. I mean, I don't. No disrespect to Connor. He's maybe not top caliber driver, but he's certainly not a you that's know right. a driver that's going to be going a lap down or two laps two down, laps down or yeah. three laps down or, and you know, VK has won races. So, you know, exactly. And, and, and Ed's won races. Yeah. So, you know, and on the ovals and, you know, on the ovals, that's where they, that where he has performed the best. I mean, obviously he doesn't run road courses anymore, but, um. Yeah, I hope I hope all those teams turn it around. Um, especially with the 500 coming up, and it's always good to see these teams just you know battle it out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in NASCAR, I did not watch NASCAR race. Um, but Kyle Larson won in Martinsville, so yep, good to see him back in victory lane. Yeah, um, good for him. Um, yeah, I was same way. I. I turned it on time to see him burn the tires down. That was about it. Right. And about a year from now, he will be getting ready to um, drive in the Indy 500. So that'll be interesting. I'm sure he'll be around this, this May. And, you know, they haven't announced it. I think he, he's going to be doing some testing before then. So I would think some of that would be starting pretty soon. Yeah. I mean, you would almost think that would be this week, but it's not going to be. I haven't heard anything about it. Right. Yeah. So it, um, so you have to believe this time next year, he will be part of that, that, uh, 500 test. I just wonder if they'll do a special, like Fernando Alonso deal for him. Like they did for Fernando. Very possible. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm a firm believer in Kyle Larson's abilities. Oh yeah. This is, uh, these cars aren't like what Kurt Bush ran. These cars are a lot different. I think Jimmy Johnson could attest to that. And, you know, Jimmy did a great job at the Speedway last year, but, you know, he was, you know, was hanging on as much as he was driving it. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So uh, it's definitely going to be interesting. Um, Other news, Tony Stewart gets a Wally to add to his collections of trophies. He won in uh, whatever portion of the NHRA event that he runs in. Um, so he won that today. So congratulations to him. Good for him, man. <laughs> Good for that guy. 
Um, I saw friend of the show, David Land, doing his live stream after the race. Um, had five or 600 viewers, I guess, at one time. Um, David always has some pretty good insights. Um, so, I, yeah, if he's going to do more of those, I would suggest anybody to check those out in the future. I don't know if he's going to Barber. He mentioned on the live stream that he uh, may forego Barber to concentrate on getting ready for the Speedway. Because that is his big time of the year. It's his Christmas, I would say. So, uh, but yeah, it was good. Um. So, and I and I think I think that's most of the racing news. So, if there's anything else, you can jump in. But um, I I will say so. The, the episode we were releasing today is going to be from our last live show, McGilvery's, which is with the Betting Houses. We talked we talked a little bit about that last time, I believe. Right. But um, um, Todd and Carrie, um, both wins right yeah yep from um of gary bedenhausen so you know obviously bedenhausen is a very um very famous famous family name in racing if anyone hasn't checked out flow racing's documentary right. on them please check it out um and then yeah i mean great talk and um i know our next mcgillivray show Maybe April 25th. Check our social media, though. We're working on a couple things with that, um, and we will let you know for sure. Um, but, yeah, no. Thanks, everyone, for watching and listening, and um, yeah. hope everyone has a great week. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everybody, and take care. Please like and subscribe. <laughs> this is the Racer Racer Podcast. Presented by Race 92 Live at McGilvery's. I'm your co-host, Aaron McTee, other co-host. You may have seen walking out of Barber Lounge 459 Not with recently. a big old smile on his face. Not recently. He is Scott Bowie. Hey, how's everybody doing? Come on now. Everybody can do a little bit better than that. That's what I'm talking about. That's what That's I'm better. talking about. So for those who don't know, we are a racing podcast. It can be found on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Please like and subscribe. Subscribe. Special thanks to, obviously, McGilvery's for letting us do these. Please make sure you buy food, buy drinks, and tip well. That's right, tip well. And thanks to Top Gun Racing and Grand King Race Shops for sponsoring this and helping us put this all together. And um, a couple of other sponsors, Racer Collect, Patrick Patton over here. If you're looking for any racing memorabilia, go to racercollect.com. And then Fast Times Indoor Karting, we have a um, partnership with them where we do um, Pro vs. Joe's um, video series racing professional drivers. So check out our YouTube channel and subscribe. And also, I missed I missed a sponsor. You mean the good folks, the good guys? That's right. Heating and air? It's getting that time. We're getting ready to turn our air conditioners on, bring good folks out, or good guys out, and bring good folks out, and uh, have them do an uh, inspection. Uh, you can find them on uh, the interwebs, and they're great people. Absolutely. So we have a great show tonight. So first off, um, I think one of the most famous families in racing is the Bettenhausen family. Uh, most recently on Flow Racing, they have a documentary. Um, what was the name of the documentary? Legends of Racing. Legends of Racing. 
And we are joined by two individuals that not only were in that documentary, but they are a um, major part of the Bedenhausen family, um, son, sons of um, Gary Bedenhausen, Todd and Carrie Bedenhausen. Hi, everybody. How's it going, guys? Good. Thank you for having us on. Absolutely. So first off, sorry, go ahead. Normally we get to lean on our Uncle Merle a little bit on these things, but he... He does Warriors Hope on, on Tuesday nights, so hello, can you turn me up a little bit? Normally we get to lean on our Uncle Merle a little bit at these things, but we're on our own tonight, so um, those last two guys you had in here were a pretty pretty tough act to follow, but we'll, <laughs> we'll do our best. I know, it's hard to fill that, right? But talk a little bit, whoever wants to talk first, about your earliest memory in racing. Well, I think this goes back to the question they asked us during the uh, production of the uh, the Flow Racing uh, program. And for me, it was definitely going to the Astrodome when we were about five or six and, you know, seeing Dad win uh, in Nowicki's Midget and really getting on an, an airplane and traveling someplace for the first time. And just the, the Astrodome was amazing. You know, when you're a five-year-old kid and you walk in and you see that place and then get to watch your dad drive there, that was Definitely the first uh, indelible memory that I had. I would have to agree. You know, we didn't travel a lot as a family racing. It was usually just Milwaukee, Indian, Pocono, and the sprint car tracks because Dad always raced to make a living. And those family outings are, are memorable, and that was the first one. I would have to agree. Yeah, we turned Pocono into a vacation every year, so all throughout the, uh, the 70s and, you know, on into the late 80s. Uh, you know, we would spend a week or two out there and, and stay on Lake Naomi in a in a cottage and just uh, bring our older brother along and, and just turn it into a family vacation. So and that we was can't always tell fun. all the stories. No, we, we definitely can't. No, we we got in trouble a few times. <laughs> you know, the, the people that rented the cabin to us got in trouble a time or two also, but that's another story. <laughs> you know, you you were saying that you you know you'd you'd go racing and do your vacations that way, and I think. Most people here grew up in racing could say the same thing. Um, what is the most memorable, the most memorable trip you guys ever took? For the trip or for the racing? Any of the above. It's your call. Oh, I'd have to say the, the Pocono trips, you know, because we were with our older brother, and um, we grew up with Billy Vukovic III. He was our best friend in racing. And, you know, we had, we'd played baseball out there, wiffle ball. We always had a, a grudge match between the four of us every year out there and we found a lot of ways to get in trouble both in indianapolis and out in pocono together so <laughs> usually little vukovic was uh right at the crux of it it seemed like anytime we uh teamed up with him we usually ended up in some sort of trouble up to and including uh, a couple trips home in a squad car so <laughs> <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah true story <laughs> in the front seat or the back seat in, uh the back the seat back. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it was always, we were to Billy's place first because he lived in a little trailer right there at the corner of 16th and Georgetown. So we got to see Billy get his punishment, and then we got ours when we got home. <laughs> Wait until your father gets home. <laughs> you know, what was it like, um, you know, like you said, your dad at that time was, a, you know, a, obviously extremely successful race car driver, uh, still making a living at it. Very busy. I mean, how many races would he run a year, um, 
you know, through the 70s. Not like the guys do today. You know, not nearly as much traveling, not nearly as many opportunities to go racing. Every one of them counted when it came to, you know, frankly, whether or not he'd have to go get a job the following year. <laughs> but I would say he probably raced, what do you think, Carrie, about 30, 40 times a year? Yeah, I mean, the USAC sprint schedule was probably 30-some races a year. Um, they do uh, double headers sometimes with sprints and midgets on the same weekend. But, uh, you know, way back when they had a 24-hour rule that you couldn't race 24 hours before a 500-mile race, or maybe it was an IndyCar race, I don't recall. But, uh, you know, a lot of times he would have to sit out. Uh, like, for example, if he was running Phoenix and they were running Manzanita the night before, he would have to sit out. So, uh uh, you know, Todd's right. I mean, you had to make everyone count back then, especially when you were chasing points, because uh, you didn't have a lot of opportunities to make up for a bad night. I think he was more concerned about chasing dollars most of the time than points. I mean, he he managed to make a living racing from the time, literally, that we were born until we got out of grad school. I mean, he had that long of a career. I remember one time somebody asked me, what's it like having your dad drive race cars for that long? And I finally came up with a pretty good answer. I said, and this refers to the Speedway, I said, when I was in elementary school, I had to hold my breath for 50 seconds at a time. When I was in high school, 45 seconds. And by the time I got to grad school, I only had to hold it for 40 seconds at a time. <laughs> so obviously, um, you know, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the Indy 500, um, was a big part to the... Um, big part of the Bettenhausen family. Talk a little bit about when when was your first time? Do you remember your first time at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway? I don't really remember what year I first went, but, you know, Dad's rookie year, I was four, and um, I think it would have been 65 is what our mom said. Yeah, but the, the first thing I really remember at Indy uh, clearly was, you know, the Saltwater crash in 73, Dad leading the race in 72 and dropping out. Um, I just don't recall much of the the time before that with Gerhardt that I could, uh, you know, give you anything definitive. Yeah, I'd say 71, 72 is about as far back as I can remember. Right on. So, um, you know, we're talking about one of the sponsors of the show, um, Grand King Race Shops. Obviously, your dad um, had a lot of involvement with the Grand King Race Shops. Well, there's no, nothing he would have rather driven than a, a Grant King car on Springfield or DuCoin or, or the Indy Mile. That was his favorite form of racing. He always went good in those cars. And um, that was, even after he got hurt at Syracuse and, you know, messed up his chance to win the Indy 500, you know, what did he do? Six years later, he comes back in a Grant King car and he wins the Dirt Car Championship. And three years later, he comes back and does it again. And the last win of his career was a... Uh, DuCoin in 1988 so he just he never gave those things up and um, never never complained about the consequences of any decisions he made along the way he he knew where he wanted to be and what he wanted to race and and that was his favorite for sure yeah and I think it's a good time to mention too that you know Grant helped prolong dad's career quite a bit at Indy because uh, you know after he started out running for Gerhardt then Penske then he got hurt he went back to Gerhardt for a couple years and then uh, 1977, 78, 79, you know, went back to driving for Grant. And had he not driven for Grant, you know, he might not have never made the Indy 500 lineup again. Uh, and yeah, then, he could have just faded away. And then, 
you know, went through, uh, you know, several other things, ran for A.J. Watson, Dick Hammond, um, and then just like uh, the happenstance that got him in Gerhardt's car in 1968, which was when, uh, help me out here, Todd, I think Mike Spence, Mike Spence had yeah. the fatal accident, and uh, Art Pollard moved over to the STP team, and that opened up Gerhardt's car for Dad to drive. Well, a similar thing happened in 1990 with uh, Menard when George Snyder decided he wasn't going to come back and run the car, and that put Dad in Menard's car, and he ended up in Menard's car for you know three or four years, and you know was a threat to you know he was always fast and fast qualifier in '91 and ran well in the race. It's just a shame that the reliability wasn't there like you know it is now. Yeah, that that '91 uh, deal. Uh, my brother Bill worked on that deal, and man, they were just devastated because they really they really felt like that was it. They felt like they had the driver. They felt like they had the car, and it just they thought they had the strategy, and it just it all come apart. Yeah, how about you know? that super team in 1993? When you look at the driver lineup, they had right. And it's just yeah, it was, it was PK. Um, Tom Sneva, Dad, right. and uh, Al, yeah, Al Senior, yeah, was was Jeff Brabham part of that team? Um, I don't remember if that was the following year or the previous year. Yeah. Well, Menard sure did hire some neat drivers. You know what? You know what? Um, what kind of relationship did they have? And, and Jim mean, Crawford, I can't leave him out. All right, my dad. Yeah, definitely. My dad's favorite teammate. Well, yeah, ever from my point of view. <laughs> Such a great guy. What uh, what kind of relationship did did Gary and, and John have? I mean, because John can be a little different at times. How do I answer this question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he asked about Dad's relationship with John Menard. Yeah. Um, sorry about that. Yeah. So, what was their relationship like? Because John could be a little different, you know. Well, first and foremost, Dad was very, very thankful sure. and was very fortunate to, to be able to drive that car and to drive for Team Menard because, again, that was another point in his career where he, his career could have ended, say, 88, 89, and then... Because he had a, the bad crash in Sacramento in the dirt car that they showed on the Flow Special, mm -hmm. and that could have put him out of business again at Indy. I mean, John sent his private jet to California to bring Dad back picked him up from the hospital and brought him back here to continue his treatment so you know dad was always very grateful um you know i won't say that john was i've never driven for him but i won't say he was the easiest guy in the world to drive for back then but uh you know dad was he was willing to to do what it took to you know to keep john and his sponsors happy and uh you know and keep that ride well i remember when paul was an up-and-coming driver dad and paul always got along really well and and spent time together which was pretty cool yeah john's son paul menard and it was great when when he finally won the the 400 and then of course later he won with pagano in what 20 what year did pagano win the 500 2018 17 18 19 something like that 19 i think anyway so menard, where's donald davidson when you need him right menard, i'm menard still keep, I'm lane keep rattling off years until i'm right in, so. in both <laughs> Yeah, I mean, John John had high expectations, and I'm sure he still does running his business. And, you know, Dad was a guy that that um, he wanted to race, and 
there, there was a there was a little bit of a, a joke that went sideways at the victory during the one year. I'll just say that. <laughs> well, we can repeat that. It's on the record. It's public record. <laughs> you can tell the story. <laughs> no, Dad always used to to say privately to us, you know, whenever he'd make the show at Indy, because for the last five or six years of his career, he only raced once a year, and that was at Indy. And he would, you know, say to my mom, "Hey, honey, I don't have to go get another a job for another year." Well. When they handed him his check at the victory banquet, 91 or 92, I don't remember which, he looked over at my mom and said, hey, honey, I don't have to get a job for another year. And Mr. Menard was not happy. <laughs> Everyone else thought it was funny, though. So, you know, something that I thought was interesting in the documentary, obviously I watched the documentary. Um, so your dad gets fired by Pinsky, right? And then he ended up um, driving a sprint car, and then he ended up sponsoring the car, right? Or something along those lines? I think what you're referring to is that in 1973, uh, you know, before Syracuse happened, yeah. the year uh, before he got hurt, the car that dad, uh, the, the Silver Crown, or what, you know, what is a Silver Crown car now, um, had Roger Penske Chevrolet on the hood, and it actually had an engine on loan. Uh, you know, Chevy V8 from Roger. So yeah, from Traco uh, Engineering. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Roger was right, and of course, Dad should have listened to him and stayed out of sprint cars and midgets and and dirt cars. You know, there's there's no telling what would have happened at Indy. A lot of people think he would have won the race several times, and you know, maybe he would have, maybe he wouldn't have. But he always took ownership of his decisions and and never once uh, blamed anyone. Uh, for you know his circumstances, he he said he did it his way, and that's the song we played at his memorial service. Elvis, not Sinatra, per his request. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's plenty to say about that accident at Syracuse that day. Also, there's a lot of folklore about you know whether there was a bet to run the track flat out or anything like that. And the, the simple fact of the matter was the car wasn't right. Dad was supposed to be in Daytona running the, the Firecracker 400, and plans changed due to sponsorships. And he called back to Indianapolis, and they put the dirt car together in a hurry. And those of you who know how race cars are built, they shortened the wheelbase four inches, and they forgot to shorten the drag link. And the car didn't have enough turning radius to the right. And the last thing they did before hot laps was run the rod ends in all the way. They had a clearance problem between the pitman arm and some of the structure on the car. That car had radiators on the sides. Mm -hmm. And he knew the car wasn't right. But it was one of those things where after hot laps, when the track got slick, you run the place like pavement anyway. But in hot laps, he pitched it down into the corner, and he ran out of turning radius to the right. He had the wheels turned all the way to the right. And the car just hooked toward the infield and, and dug in and flipped. And that's how he got hurt. But he knew that the car wasn't right. And he was just getting through hot laps and, you know, Sometimes in racing, you you don't get a second chance to make a mistake, and that's the one that changed his career. But never any um, blame for Mr. Penske. He's always been very kind to our family, and he made a decision that he had to make because he had sponsors to please. And he had a race. It's really, team that run. simple. Well, I, th I think he said something uh, there. You know, he, you said he owned it, and obviously he did. And, and you know, Gary come back and had an amazing career by anyone's standards after that arm injury. He, he did all the winning with, you know, I mean, you so, know, with, with one arm, except so the first two sprint I mean, that's just, that's, that is just a testament to a, his driving desire, B his talent. Um, so, I mean, it, it's easy to Sunday, you know, Monday quarterback, anything, right. 
but you have to look at the, the your dad's total work, and it was it was a hell of a career for anyone, you know. And, and to so late in his career to have to be you know have the fastest speed at the speedway, you know, so many years later, uh, you know, when other guys' careers had started and ended in that same time period, you know, it's is is amazing career when you really look at it. Yeah, I mean, that just doesn't happen anymore, that no. kind of longevity. I mean, Dad didn't run his first Indy 500 until he was 27 years old. Right. You know, now when you're 27, you know, you're in the, the prime of your career or maybe even done, starting on the downside. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or done. Depending on, you know, what series you're running. So for him to get that late of a start and to be able to race, you know, into his 50s, I mean, he raced his last Indy 500, I believe, uh, when he was 51 or 52. And uh, Tony Kanaan is about to tie him this year for 21 starts at Indy, which I think is about fifth on the all-time list. So uh, even though he missed the show or didn't have a ride for about four years of his career, um, you know, he never got bumped out of the field. He was too slow to make it once or twice due to, you know, circumstances, but, um, you know, never did get bumped out of the field, and he was always kind of proud of that fact. He didn't want that on his resume. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to mention that. Um, those who have seen the Flow Special, the Flow Racing Special, there's there's been some video added to it. We we found a an old eight millimeter film. Dad was the last guy to take his rookie test in a front engine dirt car, the famous Joe Hunt number ninety nine dirt car, but it had forty seven on it. And there's a few seconds of film now in the in the Bettenhausen Special on Flow, showing Dad going out on his rookie test in that dirt car. And he was always really proud of that, too. Last guy to run the, the dirt car, and he ran 150 miles an hour before it ran out of, before it ran out of steam. <laughs> same, same speed that his dad ran the year that, that he had his accident. Yeah, they in were going to put a supercharger car. on it to make it go faster so that he could complete his rookie test, but it never happened. And uh, um, there was actually uh, painted on the side of that car. This was like during the height of the Apollo program. This was 1968. This was a year or two before we landed on the moon. Right. So the, the car actually had old moonshot painted on the side of it. <laughs> so they, they knew they were uh, fighting an uphill battle. They figured but, that's about all the chance but, they had. You know, Dad wanted to race at Indy, and he was willing to do whatever it took to, to make it there. What was it about Indy? I mean, there's an obvious answer, right? But the, it's just, I mean, your dad... I mean, if he was hurt, whatever, he always made every effort to come back to Indy. Well, I think Merle said it best. He said when he looked around as he was growing up, everything that he saw around him was a result of what his dad had accomplished in racing. And every year it was, you know, how I'm, how I'm going to win the 500. What, what new great car or whatever. The, it was the, it consumed his dad and it was passed down to the, to the sons. You know that that's that's something interesting too is, is the fact that you know so many drivers today are drivers, right? And they're not mechanics, and they don't necessarily know the inner workings of the race cars they're driving, and that's fine. But someone like like your dad and his dad and, and your family, they knew they knew what the race cars did. They knew how they worked. They knew how they were constructed, and you know. You know, it may seem odd to say this, but you know, you you spend as much um, 
you expend as much energy thinking about those things as you do driving, you know, when you have those kinds of abilities. And I think that's, again, a real testament to not only him, but drivers of that era who do the same thing. I mean, that's not easy to, to you know, you, you don't just come in and say, well, you know, it, it's uh, got understeer, fix it. You know, you know, someone like Gary's going, okay, this is what I think's wrong with it. This is what I think we need to do, and that type of thing. Yeah, I think that goes back to our, our grandfather and my dad growing up on a farm, you know, learning to fix things from a young age, and he passed that on to us. Like, I can't tell you how many thousands of dollars I've saved, you know, home repairs and auto repairs and stuff just because, um, you know, he was such a good teacher. And I'll pass those lessons on to my kids for sure. Um, you know, talking about passing, you know, lessons on to your kids. In the documentary, um, they had a really cool scene of Merle. I think it was with um, your kids, right, Carrie? Correct. And, um, I mean, just talking about, obviously, Merle, um, very inspirational individual. I mean, he went through something most people would never even dream of. I mean, he lost an arm racing, and um, he really turned that whole experience really for, to the better, for the better for himself, right? Well, it was his first IndyCar start at Michigan, and, uh, um, you know, was involved in a crash with a fire and, and was trying to get out of the car while it was still on, while it was on fire, and he couldn't see <clears throat> due to the the flames in the cockpit and reached over the sides of the car to try to push his way up out of it and hit the wall again and, and lost his right arm. And uh, he'll tell you today that, you know, that's when his life really started and it, it's turned out to be the, the best day of his life because every day is a blessing and he's glad to be alive and in as good a shape as he is after that. And it's really, uh, it he'll be the first to tell you that it's made him a better person. And he's uh, shared that experience, uh, you know, at VA hospitals and uh, doing all kinds of motivational speaking, you know, something he's really good at and uh, um, working for Ray Skillman all those years and working with correct. people. He's just yeah. great with people. Yeah. He, I mean, he's a great public speaker and, and very comfortable, uh, you know, in front of crowds, unlike me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, a question I always wanted to ask, and I, and the reason, because I saw in the documentary, Gary come back to run uh, sprint cars, pavement sprint cars, and of course, you know, unfortunately, another unfortunate event with a fire. Um, but I always wanted to know who who built that car. Ah, uh, come on, he raced a week later. That wasn't so bad, right? Yeah, I know. <clears throat> uh, that was a Magnum chassis built by Robert Gallus over in O'Fallon, Illinois, who was the guy that took care of the the orange and white Delrose and Holt dirt car for all those years. He went into the chassis business, and that was, I think, his first pavement car. And um, we had it running pretty good. We were about to take the lead when it blew up. Yeah, it was fast. Yeah. That's what they all say, right? Right. It's every one of them. I think that thing had a 302 in it with titanium rods and a shaved crank. The motor sat down low in it, and the thing really worked good. And I believe it ended up in the hands of uh, Ken Hamilton, somewhere out in Idaho, and, and he was winning races with it out there last I heard. So I think he might still be running it occasionally. Yeah, that car, uh, that car is still uh, alive and kicking as far as I know. Well, I didn't even realize that. So one thing I wanted to ask about, um, well, first off, kind of going back a little bit. So, you know, we're talking about um, Gary's involvement with the Grand King Race Shops. One of the coolest sponsors, Evil Knievel. Do either of you have any Evil Knievel stories? 
We got to meet Evil oh, when yeah. we were 13. <laughs> and I, I will never forget meeting Evil Knievel. What a charismatic character he was. And he had an aura about him. And, you know, people just uh, gravitated toward him. Um, you know, he was very congenial. Just a very, very nice guy. Uh, you know, willing to talk to, to me and my brother. And uh, the thing I remember the most was... Uh, when Dad was running for Grant and, and Evil was sponsoring the car in 1977, I was 13, and uh, I noticed that uh, Evil had a watch with two movements, you know, two conventional, you know, Swiss movements in one band. And hell, I didn't know what it was, so I asked him. I said, you know, Mr. Knievel, why do you have two uh, dials on your watch? And without even breaking stride, he looked at me and said, "Because your dad goes so fast, I need two to keep up with him." <laughs> How so, many people can say that Evil Knievel said that about their dad? <laughs> Did you get to witness any of the uh, bike tricks? Because you always had a bike when you come back here. No, no but he, he did fix us up with some goodies. We got a care package from him with a, you know, some Evil Knievel motocross-style bicycles and some other oh, you know, wow. swag and goodies. So Yeah, nice. I broke one in half jumping ramps in Kyle Moore's front yard. I thought I was <laughs> Evil Knievel. <laughs> broke it right in half. We just I, rolled it down to the shop, and Dad welded I, it up. I had one piece in each hand. Dad said, I suppose you want me to weld that back together for you, right? I said, yeah. <laughs> All right, so what, one thing we have to talk about. So both of you have, and um, I, I guess it would be called disability with your vision, correct? What's the exact terminology? You want to take that one? Well, I don't qualify as disabled. <laughs> it's never gotten me anywhere on a job application or anything like that. <laughs> or a monthly check or anything like that. Yeah. No, we were born two and a half months premature, uh, had a condition called retinopathy of prematurity, which uh, basically back then in the early to mid-60s, they would just stick you in an incubator and crank the oxygen up to 100%, and it would uh, constrict the blood vessels in your retinas. And, uh, you know, a lot of kids ended up totally blind uh, during that era. You know, a lot of kids ended up worse off than us by a long and, shot. Yeah, that premature, you know, some didn't survive, so I kind of look at the glass as half full. Yeah, I mean, we got last rights early on. And, I mean, both of you have gone to big measures, I think, to overcome overcome that. I mean, talk about some of the things that you guys do that people may be surprised about. Uh, I'm not sure. I might scare somebody here, but yeah, I actually, you know, my vision's good enough in my, in my one eye. I'm completely blind in my right eye, which is why I never raced. And I knew I'd never race from an early age, so... I guess I never missed it in that sense. Uh, you know, I wasn't athletic, so I went home and read books and, and ended up, you know, a bookworm and a nerd and all that other stuff. And, and worked on race cars. Yeah, and ended up, uh, you know, being interested in technical things, you know, engineering field type stuff. So uh, I get my jollies as far as racing goes now through a simulation with iRacing, and I got a little side hustle called uh, indie Simulation LLC, IndieSim.com, that we do occasional gigs and parties with a mobile simulator and, you know, rent it out uh, by the hour for people who want to come by. Although the mobile gig is where it's at. We've been to Chicago three times and uh, several convention center events, things like that. So uh, my regular job is uh, medical device packaging, doing surgical instrument and implant sets, uh, in custom toolboxes for operating room procedures, mostly uh, orthopedic, you know, joint replacement type sets. Um, 
And I do the exact same thing for a competitive company. Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> we can't we can't talk about work, or else we'll both get fired. <laughs> so um, I, I did get a pilot's license in the early '90s. I haven't flown much. Airplane single engine land is the medical is not hard. <laughs> it's jokingly referred to as uh, sea lightning here thunder. So. That's uh, not a difficult thing to get. It's only 2040 or better in both eyes. And I'm like between 2025 and 2030 usually in my one good eye. So I just had to take a medical flight test to prove I could fly okay with one eye, which uh, a lot of pilots do. So um, that's... Uh, well, no, there, there, are, there are a lot of one-eyed pilots out there recreationally. I mean, not air airline pilots, but... Well, I would much rather be up there in a little airplane putting around the pattern at Eagle Creek than on 465 with the lunatics that you see out there now. Yeah, it's flying much it's, safer. It's gotten really crazy out there. I could get on my soapbox, but well, the next I would much rather be up there than down here. The next test fly you have to do, I will volunteer uh, Mr. Scott Bowie over <laughs> here to ride with you. I'll do it. I'm not current right now, but um, I I did work on my flight review, and then life got in the way. It's Sometimes it's tough to pursue things even as simple as getting your drone license when you've got two seven-year-olds to keep up with. People ask me, what are you doing having kids at your age? I said, oh, I can handle it. There are days when I think they were right. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're talking a little bit about the iRacing stuff. Um, something else that your dad was very involved with. Um, and so in Monrovia, he had like a development. Um, it was like kind of like a neighborhood that he developed. You can take that one, Todd. Well, he was realistic. He knew that the end of his career was coming, and he never really intended to retire, and he never did. But he always knew that he'd have to do something beyond racing. And he had a, a piece of property out there for a long time. We moved there in 1972. Uh, I clearly remember coming around the driveway, <clears throat> and when he saw the lake, he said, I'm buying it. <laughs> Just like that. Boom. Anyhow, the... The adjoining piece of property became uh, for sale probably just about the time he quit racing. And he bought it, and it, it, it gave him what he needed to, to develop it. And he put in, he, he bought a, a cat bulldozer. And some of you might know Art Boulian. He was his partner in the thing. And they built six or seven levees, put, put some ponds in. We laid the whole thing out with a GPS and took it to the surveyor in Mooresville and showed him the lots, went through it and started building houses out there. It, it was turned over to the Homeowners Association a few years ago. Really, really nice places out there. Everything's, you know, one, two, three acres. But beautiful development. There's a nice sign when you go in, it says Bettenhausen Estates. So oh, that's no, his other mark on the world besides racing. Is yeah, every house is on a nice little together. pond. <laughs> so. It's it's really pretty out there. You know, again, I mean, I, there you go again, right? I mean, uh, and mom still lives out there, by the way. And it's it's like he could just do anything he put his mind to. There, okay, that, that's what I was getting ready to let's say. Let's go build yeah. a bunch of lakes. Yeah, I mean, he comes from that generation where they they want to do it, and they go out and find a way to do it, and uh, something that's slowly being lost, it seems. Um, amongst some people and, and uh, but it's amazing, you know, the impact of, that people such as your dad and uh, have had. I mean, look at all the impact on so many people's lives he's had 
um, outside of racing. I mean, with those properties and, and things like that. I mean, that's that's people's homes. That's that's where they live, and that's where they grow their families. And it just amazes me to go on Facebook and just read a random story from someone I never met, and they remember I met your dad at so and so race, and he he talked to me and my son, and he signed these autographs, and we still have them. And I said this during the flow special. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that really makes me the proudest of our dad and who he was, was the fact that he spent. He literally stayed until the last person was met, the last autograph was signed. They turned the pit, pit lights off, he'd still be there meeting people. He, he just wouldn't walk away from anyone. And the way he treated the fans was you know, just exemplary and, and something that will always make me smile when I think about who he was, you know, not only as a good race driver, but he was very humble, so, so great with the fans. I mean, a lot of people think of him, you know, in the early 70s before he got hurt at Syracuse as being very brash. And uh, um, he really wasn't like that at all. I mean, he was very soft-hearted inside, and he was very humble and very appreciative of what he had. Yeah, it's just, um, yeah, I mean, it just, it it's a different generation. You see, you know, I don't know how much racing you go to today, but. You know, I go to midget races or sprint cars, and there's some some guys that'll stand there and sign. But you know, most people go hide in their haulers. They don't uh, they don't come out. They don't really do autographs. They don't. And and we're talking people who've never done anything. Well, believe it just, or not, you know, you you mentioned that how much racing we do. We were we were out, or I was out for quite a while. And three or four years ago, I got involved with Davy Ray. Davy and his family <laughs> have become my best friends in racing. Um, I help out on the cars when I can. Uh, yep. Him and John Sluss. I'm getting a little old to be bending down, scraping mud off sprint cars, but you know, he brought back that winning feeling. I've I've helped him out a, a few times when we when we put it all together and and we got to the front and we won a race and it feels just as good with Davey as it as it did back then when Dad won a race. Well, so I, you know, in the Ray family, I still love it and I still go. You know, the Ray family in their own way, like the Benhausen family. I mean, that's all. That's all they've done is race. I, I mean, think they've been at it longer than we have. You know, it, it's just uh, Dave and Mark and Davey and uh, I, I forget the other son's name, but it, they've and they've all had great careers, you know, and it's just, uh, like you said, I mean, they're just flat-out racers. I mean, they're builders, they're fabricators. Yep. Uh, you know, Dave builds engines, and, you know, they've got a nice little compound with a couple shops, and uh, it's a family affair, and that's right. what, the way it was for us growing up. Right. I couldn't imagine it any other way. I mean, Dad was never one to just show up with his helmet bag, drive, and then leave. I mean, he was always way more involved, uh, you know, even when he was driving for hire. So they're, they're putting cars together, so we'll be doing that again this year. Um, starting, I think, this weekend, I think John Sluss is going to run first race of the year. So Where's he run at? Can't wait. Uh, the first one, I... I'm, is it Putnamville? Okay, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll take your word for it. They're, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're mad at me. I haven't been around enough this spring. I've been through a, a few rough months here catching up on some other stuff with my, with my, my job that I really have to keep. So <laughs> I'll guarantee you by the end of May or June, they'll have seen enough of me. Absolutely. So um, they, I don't think we really talk about the betting. So 
um, the Bettenhausen shop was on Country Club Road. Where, where was the actual location of that shop? If I remember right, the address was 8225. Does that make sense? The, the Bettenhausen shop on Country Club. Any, anyone remember where it was? It was on the northeast corner of 10th and Country Club. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know where you're at. I think there was a little industrial park back there that I think Primus bought it right after yeah. Dad closed it up, and I don't know did, what happened to it after that. Did Dad buy it from Patrick? Billy, do you remember? I think it did. It was right next Correct. to Correct. It was Caddy Corner. It was Caddy Corner to Pauly Smith Plumbing Company, if anyone remembers that. Boy, a few people got their education in that building. Rob, Robin Miller, Carl Hungness, Tim Coffeen, Bobby Grimm Jr., they all came and went through there. Steve Schultz, welding up axles. And, um, chassis. Yep, Steve chassis. chassis. That was, uh, I think that was before he knocked the thermostat off the wall at Grant's shop. <laughs> now you got to tell the whole story. <laughs> yeah, Steve would be out there trying to weld up frames, freezing his ass off. <laughs> He'd go into Grant's shop. Grant's thermostat would be turned up, so he'd go turn the thermostat up in the shop. The next day, Steve would come to work. The thermostat in the shop would be turned back down. This went on for a while. Finally, Grant put a cage over the thermostat. Well, Chassis said, screw this. He went and got a proto-wheel hammer and knocked it off the wall. <laughs> Billy, is that story really true? <laughs> if Chassis tells it, it's probably true. You know, it, Steve and Gina were actually our neighbors out in Monrovia for several years. Yeah, right after we bought the, or right after mom and dad bought the, the place in Monrovia, uh, it was two houses with a lake with a property line going right down the middle, and he bought it all at once. And Steve and Gina moved in, and they were, uh, they were the neighbors. While we fixed up one house, they rented the other, and then, then, then we, we swapped houses we swapped and houses and fixed up the other one because they were just like concrete block summer cottages. But um, look at one what they bought the whole place for compared to now it's like wow you know it's no wonder my mom's still there and and you know they parlayed it into uh you know retirement money which is you know good for them well you know you know obviously you know but you know steve and gary were fierce competitors on the track and i didn't realize they had such a good relationship away from the track oh yeah we'd be out half the night catfishing uh on that pond in front of our house with steve and gina and Lightning Larry Humphreys and the guys, you know, would come out, Bobby Grimm Jr. and drink beer. We, I remember we had a pig roast, a big fire pit one year. Just It was, it was country living. That it didn't was go good. so well. Yeah. Somehow the, the pig didn't get done enough. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those deals where it was buried. <laughs> yeah. It turned out to be a letdown. Oh, come I on. Think, people are eating dinner. I think it just Too much turned, information. I think it just turned out to be a lot of beer drank and not, not a whole lot of hog eating. <laughs> So you kind of mentioned it. You've got two seven-year-olds. Will there? I, I don't have them. They have me. There you go. Will there ever be another uh, Benhausen racing? Don't know yet. Um, my son is into hockey big time. Man, he can skate circles around me. He makes me look old, fat, and slow. <laughs> the, the parents versus kids games are really ugly. <laughs> but he. He plays in net, and uh, you know he's a position player also. And he's really, really good on skates. I'm not. I'm not just saying that because it's my kid. I mean, he amazes me. He's lightning fast. Um, 
Um, you know, he's athletic. He's good with stick and ball stuff. Um, uh, my daughter is, uh, you know, they are twins, and my daughter's into uh, girl things. You know, they're they're very much. Well, Let's just put it this way. There's no gender identity issues in our household. <laughs> they know. They know who they are. And our, you know, our daughter's growing up to be a, you know, a beautiful little lady. She, uh, she amazes me with, uh, with her smarts. I just can't believe some of the things I hear her say. <laughs> She's into, like, dance and all that old-fashioned girl stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, makeup and cosmetics and, and yeah, a lot of dance and stuff like that. And, and you know, she... She really does amaze me. They both do. That's funny. Um, well, we're going to give everyone kind of opportunity if anyone has any questions. Um, and I feel like some of these questions could um, turn into a couple-minute answers. So. <laughs> Anybody? Does anyone have anything? Are you saying I'm verbose? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Billy. I know you got something. Yeah, Billy's definitely. Yeah, coming. you guys, get the ball rolling back there. What, what year did he retire? He never did. He just faded away. That's how he. That's how he wanted it. His his last race was uh, 1996, the U.S. 500. Was the day, it really? Yeah, the day Buddy Lazier won the Indy 500, we were up in Michigan. I'll, I'll try not to take that. two minutes, but I've got a good story for you guys on that one. The the last helmet he wore, I asked him shortly after that. You know, I realized that he probably wasn't going to race again, even though he never talked about it. So I said, I've never really asked you for much. Can can I have that helmet? And he said, Yeah, sure. So about three years later, I reminded him, I said, hey, what'd you do with that helmet? And he kind of got this, oh, crap, look on his face. He said, I loaned my snowmobile to the Monrovia Fire Department last winter, and the helmet went with it. I said, get the helmet back. <laughs> so he got it for me. So that was 96, his last race. What was his rookie year at Indy? 68. Bill, did you have a question? Yeah, it was twin 50s, and they both blew up in the first 50s, so they had to borrow cars to run the second one and decide the championship. Yeah, a lot of people say that that was the greatest drive in, in USAC sprint racing history. I won't attest to that because I don't remember it, but uh, he went from last to first. And I think, didn't he take the lead on the last corner and win the championship because of that? Yeah. You know, I look at those movies, the the old Larry and Gary show stuff, and and see those guys running, you know, Salem and Winchester with no cages, just wheel to wheel. Yeah, they treated each other with a lot more respect back then than they do now. But you look at how dangerous it was with no cages, and you know, I just can't, I can't imagine anybody, you know, doing that. Uh, I mean, you had to really want to race badly to put yourself in that position because. It was brutal back then. Yes, they did. Um, that was kind of for the media. They, they never really were. They were very competitive, but they never disliked each other at all. Larry explained it a little bit in the flow special. You know, here's this new guy coming along, starting to win races. But they were, like, like they said, they were just racing each other back then. You remember when they tangled at the fairgrounds on the mile with a lap or two to go? I think Dad was running for Willie, and I can't remember which car Dixon was in, but Dixon kept going and won the race, and Dan ended up parked. And uh, 
he gathered a posse and headed toward the stage. Everybody thought there was going to be a fight, and Dixon took the garland off his neck and gave it to Dad, and it was all smiles and hugs Everybody and beers. Everybody shook hands, and then they cracked a beer. Yep. Yeah, Larry put a roof on our house out in Monrovia, the Red Roof Inn, we called it. He put a, <laughs> a metal roof on it. One day, Mom and Dad are laying in bed, and bang, 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 what the heck's going on? Dad goes outside, and there's Larry on the roof at 6 in the morning. <laughs> Hey, Scott had someone on, on his roof not that long ago. Yeah, he wasn't invited either. He was just, <laughs> somebody just was going to put a new roof on my house. You should have let him do it. Yeah, I, I got a feeling that would have went bad for me. It's <laughs> not as quite as, as bad as when the doctor cuts the wrong arm off or whatever, but they literally went to the wrong address. Yeah, I, uh, I was, uh, so I work uh, customer service is what I, now you know. I actually have a real job. And uh, I work customer service for a place, and they, uh, I was actually talking to a customer, and I could hear my dog going crazy, and I heard banging on my house. I'm like, man, what the hell is that? So I actually told, I asked the customer, I said, do you mind if I put you on mute for a second? I went outside, and this guy was putting a ladder against the house, was getting up there, and he was getting ready to start taking shingles off. And I was like, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm here to put a roof on. I said, I don't want a roof. And uh, he goes, did, did you say, is... look at my roof, it's fine? Yeah, well, actually, it's not, but uh, <laughs> but uh, well, he goes, well, then why did then you, you should have kept your mouth shut? You well, for your roof? Because I would end up, I know I would have ended up paying for it somehow, but uh, he uh, he goes, was this such and such house? I said, no, that's next door. He goes, oh, I'm sorry, and he just got back in his van and left. And I was like, man, if I wasn't home, I would have come home to no roof of my house. <laughs> Then I they think, would have had to finish. I think if somebody's banging on my house at 6 in the morning uninvited, I'm not going to be the only one greeting them because I'm probably going to have Mr. Glock at my side, too. <laughs> uh, it was crazy. It, it, yeah. It, that's that's one of many crazy stories, but yeah. Well, one last question I have before we take any other questions from the audience. Um, what if, if there was one piece of advice you ever got from either your dad or – Uncle Merle, Tony, um, is there one piece of advice that any of them have given either of you that just kind of sticks out and something you kind of live by? Do you want to take that one, Todd? Because I know where you're going there, there, with this. There's, there's a couple things. First of all, when, when you're with your family, live in the moment. You know, mm. put the phone down and for sure, they're not going to be around forever. No, you're right. <clears throat> And the other one, um, what turned out to be our last conversation with our dad, I went to show him a race that I had found on YouTube, and I started to show it to him, and he interrupted me, and he said, what are you wasting your time with that stuff for? He said, all you've got is today, and what's ahead of you? He said, do you remember exactly how I put it? Only look forward. Only look forward, yeah. He yep. said, only look forward. Don't Don't waste your time with that stuff, you know. What we said about him taking ownership of his decisions, you know, he never sat around and regretted the fact that he stayed in dirt cars and never won the 500. He only only looked forward, and like he told Donald Davidson, you know, I I always, I never want to miss the sunrise. So that's another Gary B. Pearl of Wisdom. Don't miss the sunrise. You have anything to add to that, Gary? Nope, I think that pretty much says it all. Yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, anyone else have any questions? Sprint car races, raceway cars, when your dad had to climb out 
The crankshaft broke at the rear main, and when it did, it took everything off the motor plate. You know, the, the fuel pump, the drive shaft came out, went out the top of the cage, and actually ended up in Rich Vogler's lap. Uh, Vogler threw it out on the front straightaway uh, the following lap under yellow when the, they went by. So yeah. basically there was a gaping hole in the firewall and everything, fuel, oil, everything came out. Yeah, what might have actually happened, that car was, that engine was in our own car at the Copper World Classic, and Dad got tangled up in a little accident at the start and bumped the inside wall with the left rear. And we think that it might have broken it then. It might have been cracked the whole time. And it was just waiting for us to put it in another car and, and blow up on us. Yeah, we turned that motor pretty tight. And uh, I think it just came unglued and spilled its guts all over him. And uh, if it wouldn't have been for the, uh, the headers that we stole off an Indy car that came out the side instead of going out the exhaust ports and straight down toward the ground, the thing probably would have run him over with the left rear tire when he fell off the top of the car, but he landed on the headers and the headers, you know, he bounced off the headers and kept kept him from getting run over. So. Yeah, and he, he didn't have his full fire suit on that day. He had taken some pictures earlier. It was, it was his Indy car suit, and he didn't have the layers on underneath of it. And he said as soon as it caught fire, he said, oh, you dumb shit, you're not wearing your whole uniform. So he, he burned up quicker than he should have. Didn't he, didn't he get burnt really bad, like at Decoin or Springfield one time with the oil tank under the seat, too? Oh, that was when he won the Hoosier 100 in 1980. Okay. They took the padding out of the seat. He wanted to sit a little right. lower in the car because he was getting hit by rocks. And they couldn't raise the windshield, so he said, I'll just sit lower in the car. And it had a, you know, some pretty dense foam in the, in the seat with a, a, a hole cut out in it so you could reach the oil cap. Well, when they took the foam out of the seat, he was sitting right on the seat pan. Right, and, right uh, on the top of the oil and cap. And one of his butt cheeks was right on top of the, the cap for the oil tank. And uh, he almost pulled in partway through the race because he was burning up so bad back there. But uh, he stayed with it. And when he got out of the car, he went and looked, and he had a blister exactly the shape of the, uh, the oil cap. <laughs> On his backside. <laughs> yeah, and you, when you mentioned most memorable wins, I'd have to say winning the Hoosier 100 in 1980 was one that really sticks with me because he wanted to win that race for a long time. He came really close, I think, as a rookie. I think he ran second to Al Unzer, and it took him 10 years to win a, a race on a mile. After that, he didn't win until Springfield in 78. That was a Grant King car, and that was the, the Bettenhausen, the Tony Bettenhausen race, so that was that was awesome. And then same car, different team, went on to win the two championships and did win the Hoosier 100 in 1980. So I'd say that one. And even though I wasn't there when we won the Copper World Classic in 1983 with our own car that we put together out in the woods in Monrovia, those two, those two really stick with me. I was too young to remember the, the time Dad lapped everybody four times at Trenton and stuff like that. But well, that now you beat Chassis in 80, right? Uh, it was Poncho Carter. Part, that, was it Poncho in 80 and then Chassis in 81? Uh, he didn't win oh, his he won second. A, did he win the Holman? He, he won his second championship in the 83. Okay. Um, Chassis won the Hoosier 100, I think, in 82. I'm not positive. I think he was driving for Dick Hammond. Right. So he was driving that Kurt C. Geronimo car that Grant took care of before that. 80. Yeah, he ran out brakes. Yeah, that was a good car. Yeah, he ran out. Yeah, I know. Brakes, yeah, I remember. Yeah, tell me about it. 
And then we uh, prepared Charlie Scruggs' car a few years later, and Chas drove it and ran out of brakes again, <laughs> and you know had fast time and was running good. I think, I think that might question. have been our fault, as I understand it. <laughs> Alan's got a question, Roger. Sure. <laughs> Got you too, huh? From the oil tank? <laughs> well, you, you bet you uh, Scruggs' car, you know, Stevie Reeves, when they had that car when Floyd had it, Stevie Reeves got burnt really bad at uh, the fairgrounds too, the same way. You'd think yeah. the memo would get around. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, for all the success that Dad had on half miles in the USAC sprint cars, you know, on pavement and dirt, uh, I do recall him saying that when he got in a Silver Crown car and went to the miles, it was different, and he was different, and he really thought that that was where he was at his best. And another little uh, nugget that you guys may not know, um, you probably don't know what he said his favorite type of car to drive was because it wasn't indie cars it wasn't sprint cars it wasn't midgets it wasn't stock cars but for a uh, for a while there he was running the california style super modifieds when he'd go to the copper world classic and larry trigero and the trigero brothers hired him and he went to phoenix and ran those supers for a few years and he, those cars were his favorite cars to drive he said that you know those big Big block V8s, every time a cylinder hit, they'd lunge forward about three feet, and he just was absolutely uh, enamored with the horsepower and how fast those well, things they were, go. they were just a couple ticks of the clock slower than what it would have taken to make an IndyCar race back then. Right. Yeah. They just, the, the cars were so fast and so good that no manufacturer could make a tire that would live on them. So that was the kind of the downfall of the thing, but he loved driving those cars. I think Stephanie has had her hand up for a minute. Yeah. So I want to say how much the Well, no one's done more, I think, in this room than you and Billy have. The The shop is magnificent. I know how much work you guys have put into it. And you talk about preserving history. You're, you and Billy are doing a lot more to do that than, than we ever did. But yeah, The first time I walked we'll in that place, I was just, <laughs> I was floored. I was like, it was like being 12, 13 years old again and, and going in and seeing Grant's shop. No, it we, wasn't. Grant's shop was never like that. I was going to say, it was never that nice. Much better now. <laughs> Seeing a lot of the equipment and the drafting room and the the watercolor of the car that that they were going to put together for Dad when the Oberdorfer deal was coming together, all that stuff just brought back a flood of memories. It was it was really cool, and uh, it's a good time to give a shout out to Flo and give them a big thank you for what they did because, uh, like I told Laura Andrew. Um, who she I put the whole thing I believe together. she was executive producer, but she was the one who put it all together and did all the legwork to 
pull all the, the video and, and everything together to make that happen. I told her, I said, you know, this brings to life my dad and my grandfather for my kids. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, it's a very ambitious production, and I can't wait to see the rest of the series because yeah. she, the, the whole team did a great job on it, but I can't help but imagine that they're only going to get better. Yeah, well, we, it's we a, dug deep finding those old films and stuff for that thing. Yeah, it's it's a if anybody here has flow hasn't watched it, please do. It it really is great, and uh, I you know and I get to see a little bit of my family's history in it too. You know, I see cars that Dad worked on uh, and that sort of thing in in the videos, and uh, and I even texted Aaron. I said, man, I, I, it's I'm watching a little bit of my childhood here as well, and I said it's just pretty amazing. Yeah, I saw home movies that my mom took with a Super 8 camera uh, on celluloid that we had had in storage for uh, 40, 50 years that had never seen the light of day. And we gave those to Flow Racing, and they digitized them all and used part of them in the special and provided us with digital copies of historical records that, you know, normal film's not going to be around forever. So, right. you know, we're very thankful that they did that for us as well. Absolutely. Um, well, if no one else has anything else, um, I think we've reached our hour, but thank you guys so much for coming on. Hey, I did. I, hey, I got to ask you guys something. What did you guys get from Arby's last night? Because when I went to Arby's, they were getting in their minivan. They'd been there. <laughs> what do you guys, what did you guys get? A Diet Coke. Oh, come on. Hey, that's a Scott that, Bowie that was it, right though. there. <laughs> no, I, did, I didn't eat there. I think I... Went to the fountain and made an Arnold Palmer. Yeah, that ma that makes two of us. I didn't eat there either. It almost sounds like it almost sounds like Bowie's like stalking our I guests stalking the night guys. before I, I, for well, the show. What you don't understand is I stalk all of our guests before the shows. Yeah, I've heard. <laughs> you didn't go to Rookies later at like about midnight, did you? No, no, I didn't do that. Well, you'd have found us there too. <laughs> <laughs> I'd seen all I needed to see at our. Come on now, my my boss might be listening. Funny. Well, yeah, thank you guys so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you.